One of the most famous photos from spaceflight ever is of a suited astronaut floating untethered above the Earth. You've all seen it, but you might not know that the astronaut inside that suit was Bruce McCandless II. Well, today we talk to his son, Bruce McCandless III, who is about to release a biography of his father called Wonders All Around, as we hope to learn more about the person inside the suit. Plus, all the news, sport, and weather forecasts from the world of spaceflight. As we're beginning to approach one year of podcasts, please consider joining our Patreon page for plenty of extras and goodies. Check it out on patreon.com forward slash space and things. But right now, please enjoy episode 44 of the Space and Things podcast. Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles. Right, before we get started, there's something I want to talk about. One of our Patreons and biggest supporters, Brittany Phillips, who you may know as Future Teacher in Space. Now, uh, She's doing something really special. She's a she's a high school engineering teacher just outside of Nashville in Tennessee. And she's so passionate about educating and inspiring uh, her students about spaceflight and STEM. Now, you would have heard us talk about analog missions in the in past podcasts where things are simulated on Earth, which may happen in space. And Brittany is about to do one of these missions. She's going to the high seas habitat in Hawaii uh, to simulate what it's like to be isolated on the moon or Mars for a long period of time. And the whole thing is to help inspire her students, which is absolutely amazing. Now, uh, it looks really cool. She's tr- yeah, exactly. Exactly. It does look really cool. Now she is trying to raise a thousand dollars to help her get there and all that kind of stuff. And she's set up a little crowdfunding page and I'm going to put the link in the description. And I'd like to think that some, some of you, if you're willing, would check it out and potentially, uh, donate to her off for this because I think it's a really cool thing that she's doing and she's doing it for the right reasons. So uh, if you're willing, check out that link. But for now, let's just uh, get going with the rest of the show. Yep, absolutely. So when I was a child, I got to go to Kennedy Space Center and I managed to talk my mum and dad into letting me get six large prints, which we had to somehow try and get home back to England. I think we put them in a tube, uh, managed to get into one of the suitcases and then obviously had to try and straighten these up back home. We put them underneath a mattress for a while, I think, and then they went up on my wall until I left home. I think they even came with me afterwards at first until they eventually wore out. So these were like iconic images. There was Earthrise, the blue marble, uh, one of the Hubble prints, uh, a shuttle launching, a shuttle landing, shuttle was the big deal at the time, and the one of the astronaut hanging above the Earth, untethered, the ultimate spacewalk experience. But I'm ashamed to say that I didn't know the name of the astronaut in that suit until about five years ago. Or perhaps someone once told me or it was on the back, but it just didn't stay with me. I'm almost certain uh, that I wasn't the only person who had this photo on their wall who also didn't know who that person was or anything about them. Yeah. Um, funny thing is, I'm, I'm pretty sure I had the same poster. I had the poster of my wall on my wall of the uh, famous uh, spacewalk. 
So if you didn't know who was on the famous poster, it is, of course, Bruce McCandless II, who joined the Astronaut Corps in 1966, which I believe until today is also the last time England beat Germany in a competitive soccer match. Right, Dave? Yeah, well, you're kind of right. In a, com- in a competitive competition, yeah. So, yes, it happened today. It's good news. First time since we won the World Cup in 1966. Anyway, let's m- moving on, moving on. And, and it's football. Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back to Bruce McCandless. Um, <laughs> well, he was part of the fifth group of astronauts, which included the likes of moonwalkers such as Charlie Duke, Jim Irwin, and Ed Mitchell as well as other Apollo legends such as Fred Hayes, Al Warden, Ron Evans, Ken Mattingly, Jack Swigert, and Stuart Rusa, and some Skylab favorites of mine such as Jack Lausma, Jerry Carp, Bill Pogue, and Paul Weitz. But one of the last members of his class to receive a flight was Bruce McCandless II, who had to wait 18 years before getting his first flight on board the Space Shuttle Challenger for STS-41B, the flight where he was captured in that famous picture becoming the first astronaut to perform an untethered spacewalk. He flew again on the Space Shuttle Discovery in 1990 on STS-31 for the deployment of the now-legendary Hubble Space Telescope. And today we are joined by his son, also called Bruce, uh, who is just releasing a brand new book all about his father called Wonders All Around. So let's hear from him as we try and learn more about the man in the photograph. And we're getting a picture on the TV. There's a great deal of contrast yeah. in it, and currently it's upside down on our monitor, but we can make out a fair amount of detail. Hello, Bruce. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Now, I'm about eight chapters through this book, and I am absolutely loving it. But Emily has oh, read the whole good. thing, so I'm going to pass over to her for the first question. Now, of course, you know, it's almost like a softball question. You know, everybody's familiar with your dad from the the poster. I think all of us uh, space nerds had the famous photo on our walls. And um, I think to a lesser extent, people are familiar with him from Apollo 11, the movie that came out a couple of years ago, because he was uh, one of the stars of that film. But there's a lot of programs at NASA. I mean, he was there for quite some time. That people are not, you know, they don't know he was involved with, or um, can you talk a little bit of, about that? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, you're right. So, so he, um, he his first sort of uh, claim to fame was was working as uh, Capcom for Apollo 11, uh, and and uh, as as you point out, a lot of people know him from the the STS 41B mission when he tested the uh, the man maneuvering unit, but. But uh, but he was at NASA for 24 years and got his um, got involved in a bunch of different projects and and uh, one of them uh, in the early 70s involved uh, uh, America's first uh, space station which was called uh, Skybase or Sky Camp I think <laughs> something I'm not uh, I'm not bringing up the uh, <laughs> do, do you remember that one Emily <laughs> I'm gonna get dinged Skylab and and uh, um, so when it. when as you know, when when Skylab was uh, was sent up, the un- uncrewed mission, uh, there was some damage to uh, to to the uh, to the vessel, and and uh, you know lost its micrometeorite shield, and one of the solar arrays was lost, and the other one wasn't working, and and so he was on the backup crew for for uh, for Skylab. I guess you designated Skylab two, the first crewed mission, 
Uh, and and uh, he and Rusty Schweikart and, and Story Musgrave uh, were, were frantically busy uh, trying to, to engineer fixes uh, for the problems they could see on, uh, on Skylab. And, and um, as you know, um, um, they, they were successful in doing that. And of course, um, uh, Joe Kerwin and, and uh, Paul Weitz and gosh, I can't remember the commander of the first mission. It was uh, uh, Conrad. Was it Pete Conrad? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Okay. They were able to uh, sort of almost miraculously uh, fix those problems and get uh, get Skylab's uh, temperature uh, stabilized, and and uh, and Skylab became a, a real triumph for the American space program. Uh, not as not as well recognized or remembered as it should be, but uh, went on to become a real milestone. And and Emily, you and I have sort of talked about this. You know, Apollo w- was great, but it, in large part, it was it was uh, it was almost politically focused. It, a lot of that was about beating the Russians and 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 just showing folks that we could go to the moon. Whereas Skylab was was a, a was something new, and it was a, it was an attempt to use space and our presence in space for for more benign or more productive purposes. I think not not that Apollo was in any way faulty. I'm I'm just saying Skylab was was this attempt to to start studying uh, Earth and the Sun and and human physiology and and. Uh, uh, you know, it, it was a fascinating project, as as you, as much as anyone has, you know, been able to point out. So, so he was involved in Skylab, and and later became involved in the design and deployment of the Hubble Space Telescope, and and later actually the repair, which is something a lot of people don't know. Uh, he went up with Lauren Shriver and Charlie Bolden and and uh, Steve Hawley and Kathy Sullivan on uh, STS thirty one in nineteen ninety. Uh, they deployed the satellite. Uh, returned home as heroes, uh, only to find out not not long afterward that Hubble wasn't functioning the way it should. He actually left NASA in August of 1990 and immediately went to work for the Space Telescope Science Institute uh, and their panel that had been set up to figure out ways to fix Hubble. And uh, he ended up being uh, intimately involved in that whole process. And as you know, um, NASA in 1993, was able to, to get up uh, with Story Musgrave and some other folks and, and uh, fix that big main mirror, make some other repairs. And, and uh, lo and behold, um, you know, after that and other servicing missions, Hubble is still up there. It's, it's, it's in trouble right now. We don't know what's going to happen to it, but it's been up there for 31 years and, you know, produced some, some pretty magical uh, moments and some great science. Yeah, I mean, I'd say, I'd say of all those projects, I mean, Hubble may have been the one that Bruce McCandless II was was uh, proudest of in terms of, you know, his involvement in the, in the, in the productivity. <laughs> well, you just answered my next question, which was going to be, <laughs> what was he most proud of? Because obviously he is most well known for that photograph of his spacewalk uh, with the MMU. And it's an iconic photograph. So therefore he's an icon. Did he ever feel iconic? Yeah. <laughs> for that, or was he almost a little bit embarrassed about it? You know, that, that's a good question. Um, you know, I was in uh, in Great Britain when that mission went up, when he, he and, and Bob Stewart tested the MMU. And uh, and I remember watching, uh, you know, British television coverage of the uh, of the flight. The video footage we were getting was was pretty grainy. It was, you know, it was interesting, but it wasn't uh, it, it wasn't something that you could uh, that you marveled at. It was something you sort of had to decipher or you had to figure out what was happening. And, and and it was it was great, but it was really uh, it was really Hugh Gibson's 
photograph, you know, which he took using an old fashioned camera that he focused and adjusted on his own. It was when that photograph came out that the, the magic of it all, the, you know, was sort of captured. And, and he became, as I say in the book, the accidental icon. I, I do think that photograph is pretty important. It's, it's, you know, we all remember the Earthrise photo from Apollo 8 and Buzz Aldrin on the moon and, and, um, and you know, the pillars of creation from Hubble. But, but I do think, I, I think that photograph of Bruce II in the, uh, in the MMU uh, is, is one of NASA's uh, best images. And it's, it's one of their most popular ones. And you see it all over the place. Uh, I was driving down the freeway in Houston uh, last year and the furniture truck went by and had, <laughs> had the image on it. I'm not sure what the connection was with furniture in Houston, but, but uh, people, people like it and like to adopt it. Now, now it, it took him a while. I mean, it, you know, it took him a while to realize uh, how important the image was, but I think by the end, he was quite comfortable with it and, and very proud of it. And, you know, he, he never ceased to give a fair amount of the credit to, to Hugh Gibson for taking the photo. Uh, but, mm. but yeah, he was, uh, awesome. he, he was, he was proud of it. And part of that is because he was not involved, not only involved in, in flying it, um, but, but, uh, starting in 1966, uh, he and a, a former Air Force officer named Ed Whitsitt were deeply involved in engineering and, and improving it from, you know, the days with, uh, with the Gemini program or Gemini program, uh, and Gene Cernan trying to test it out in 1966, all the way up through that 1984 flight. And, and as uh, as Emily is nodding her head, I mean that you know some of the most some of the crucial testing for the uh, the MMU was on was on Skylab when Albine and others uh, flew it around inside the orbital workshop, gave it glowing uh, reviews. Yeah, it's fantastic. I, and I I of course had that image on my wall as a child. I think a lot of us did. It's kind of weird admitting this to his his son in a way is <laughs> i know i told you this but um i did a panel at space fest years ago and um he was the first person to show up for the panel and he was like uh ma'am you know he was really like quiet and i was like oh my God. and i couldn't talk because he was one of the astronauts that like scared me because um i've there are a few astronauts i've never talked to and it was him and Jim Lovell, because I'm like, they're both like Navy icons and you just don't go up and talk <laughs> to them. You know, I, you just let them talk to you type of thing. So he comes up and he's like, um, ma'am, you know, may I be on this panel? And I was like, yes, uh, of course, Captain McCandless. And he was like, oh, yeah, like he was impressed. That, yeah, he was impressed. I think that I knew what his rank was. So he was like, OK, you know, he was the friendliest, <laughs> nicest person um in the world and it was just like i, I just remember being like tongue-tied but i remember thinking the whole panel when he was talking i was like that's the guy on the poster and i'm like he's sitting right there and i was like oh my god yeah, yeah i turned into like a 10 year old well, or something it was just the weirdest thing well he you know that, that's a great story and it, 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 it does sound like him. You, know, you have to realize that letting him on that panel and it was like letting it letting the kid into a candy store because there was, there was nothing that he wanted to talk about or think about or, or participate in as much as he liked, uh, as much as uh, space exploration. So getting to talk about that was, uh, you know, that, that was, uh, that was his deal. He, he was with, you know, as you know, he was with NASA for 24 years. Uh, then he left and uh, after, after working with the space uh, telescope science folks, he went over to Lockheed Martin and he was there for 24 years. And, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, as I point out in the book, he was, uh, you know, he worked on things like uh, 
the, the Mars Phoenix lander and, and uh, you know, the acquisition of Russian rockets uh, back in the early 90s and all kinds of projects. And that was just what he did. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you let him on the panel. <laughs> he would have been very unhappy. If you I wasn't going to say no. I wasn't gonna <laughs> like, no, of course not. I don't even know who you are. Like, uh, of course not. No, he was gracious and just like, may I be on this panel? I was like, uh... Why wouldn't I let you on this panel? You know, I know what you mean. You didn't get to be a captain in the Navy without having a little bit of a, um, you know, you, you had to be able to project a little bit of, um, uh, I'm not going to say menace, but a little bit of yeah. uh, sternness. And so, yeah, I, I, I can see where where that, that demeanor, that that uh, no-nonsense demeanor sometimes was, was, uh, was evident for sure. So, obviously, this new book is coming out. What made you want to write this book? Did your father ever want to write his own book or did he just never get round to it? Is that one of the reasons you wanted to write it? Or was this because you felt that the story hadn't been told? Yeah, that's a little, that's a little of both. Um, Emily's story is, is a good one because it points out that my dad had a, he had a healthy ego. Uh, he was a smart guy. He knew he was a smart guy. He, he, was, uh, he trusted his engineering skills. But he was also sort of a pathologically humble guy and, and maybe even to the detriment of his career sometimes because he probably could have been a little bit better at, uh, at self-promotion. Several times during his career, and in fact, after he left NASA, he was approached by folks who were interested in writing his story you know, with him. He always declined and he wouldn't say why exactly, but I, I sort of got the feeling he didn't think his, maybe his story was, was interesting enough. I obviously disagree with, but Toward the very end of his life, he, he had changed his mind. And, and in fact, uh, during a trip to Great Britain, I think he was up in Yorkshire uh, addressing some folks up there and, and started talking about maybe writing an autobiography. And a suggestion was made for a title, Untethered, and he sort of liked that. And, and you know, when he came back, he was talking about, about uh, writing a story. And unfortunately, he, he became ill in 2017 and, and died sort of unexpectedly. So he never really got a chance to do it. It's a shame because it's his story, uh, but I feel like I wanted to do it because he didn't get a chance to. Mm. It's not as good technically as he could have written, but I'm, I'm, in, in other ways, you know, I'm not sure he saw the drama in his life or, or fully appreciated what he meant to other people. So maybe it's good that I've been able to write it. And, and you know, there, there was a, there's a dramatic arc to his career that I've tried to, to capture here. And I'm not sure he would have done that. He, he didn't see himself as a, the main character very much he just wanted it to uh, to do the work and did you feel like you had all the the right information or did he keep a journal or something to help my, my mom and dad both died just a few years ago and, and uh, as we've been going through their files and papers and photographs and that sort of thing it, it turns out that they they were borderline hoarders. I mean, I'm not even sure it's borderline. They, they just, they kept everything. Uh, and, uh, you know, checkbooks from 1962 and, you know, letters back and forth when, when my dad was a, a young fighter pilot on the forest, USS Forrestal and journals and diary entries and, and uh, receipts and, and just crazy stuff. So, so I had all this source material uh, and then I had people like, uh, well, frankly, like Emily and the folks in the Space Shipsters group who who uh, have been aggressively helpful. I mean, you know, you put out a question on Space Shipsters <laughs> on Facebook and, and you've got 17 answers. Uh, my first experience with that was, was I found an old photograph of a training trip, I guess, to Iceland. And, and uh, there was a bunch of guys in it, you know, 
two or three of whom I recognized as astronauts. Uh, so I, I posted it on Space Hipsters, and, and <laughs> were were people immediately knew who every you know person was. And I got all these responses with you know people had written on the photograph and. One guy in this photograph, and I can't remember who it was, had pulled his jacket up over his head as a you know some sort of a, a smart alecky protest, and someone knew who that was, and and so there was there, there was really no excuse for me uh, not to write it, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, having the motivation and the and the uh, the archive. My dad was his own archivist in a way. That's sort of how it started. So I've written about I've never written about my family. Um, I've written about people, sometimes people I've never met, and I, I find myself after a while, you you do develop sort of an, an emotional, I guess, attachment to them. You know, even if you've never met them, you kind of get inside their brain and you're like, man, you know, I really empathize with this person or, you know, you kind of get sucked up into their story. You know, your book, obviously, you know, you're you're writing about your family. You're not just writing about your father. You know, you write about your sister and you write about your mother and sort of, you know, your family relationships as well. What were the challenges of, you know, doing that, you know, and what, and, and what were the, you know, good parts of doing that as well? I don't want to make it sound like it yeah. was all difficult or something like that. Well, you know, it, it is, it is a little difficult. Um, and, and, you know, you, you're sort of opening up this whole vault of recollections and, and emotions, good and bad. And, and um, some days it seems like a better idea than others. My dad was an intriguing character, and it's always challenging to write about him. My, my mother was a little bit easier. I, you know, as you can probably tell from my from my book, I have a uh, I have a lot of admiration uh, for my mom, and in fact, for all the all the astronaut wives who who basically uh, held their families together during those days. And and uh, and then my my sister and I are. are are still close and so that was fun and, and pretty easy too as you point out there's a couple of chapters about my family and about growing up in that area in that particular time frame you know 1969 1983 something like that before i went off to college and i, I asked myself the rhetorical question but why why are you writing about this why is it that someone who's interested in space exploration and or bruce mccandless would be interested in this and it's really the only way I knew how to write about it because, you know, I, I'm not big on the technology. I'm not, uh, I, I don't know orbital, orbital mechanics. You know, I don't know the history of all the, all the uh, technical innovations that went into to space flight. What I do know is how it, how it felt and, and uh, um, what was happening with our little group, our little family there in, in uh, uh, South of Houston uh, near the J Johnson space center back in the early seventies. And, you know, it was a it was a weird time. I mean, I tried to point that out in the book. It was it wasn't a happy time for the country, and it wasn't always a happy time in the area that where we lived. I give my mom and dad a lot of credit for for sticking together through, you know, a time that wasn't easy for couples and marriages, and, and a situation that wasn't easy. I guess it's a debatable choice in terms of what I wrote about and whether that stuff should be in there. But but like I say it was the only way I really knew how to tell the story. Well, I'm really glad that you did do it that way because it's enabled me to get to know him even better as a person. Emily and I were recently interviewing Francis French for an episode which we've got coming up. And he said that Al Warden pointed out to him that there was a shift from people wanting to know about the science of spaceflight to people wanting to know more about the people behind it. And Emily and I, whilst loving the science and trying to understand that to the best of our ability, also really love learning about the people. And we get inspiration from that. And I'll give an example here, but 
I would have had no idea that your dad was at the centre of so much history without reading this book. As a small child, he witnessed one of the biggest events in American history. Uh, As a naval officer, he was there for one of the biggest events of the early 60s. He was friends with someone who ran for president. And yet he himself was the man in that photo. And the voice of Houston, when Neil Armstrong said, that's one small step for a man. As his son, were you conscious of all of that? Uh, Or looking back... Are you now in awe of him for all of this? Especially when you add on to the fact that your grandfather was also hugely famous in his own time for his own achievements. Yeah, well, that's you know those are those those are great points. So I'll, I'll just say uh, no, I wasn't aware of all that, and and uh, um, I, I learned a lot um, writing the book. You know, I'd heard some of the stories, uh, but you know. Finding an essay written by my dad's mother about Pearl Harbor experience, and then you know seeing a letter my dad wrote himself, you know, in connection with the, what could have been a, a military intervention, and then seeing you know finding out about the fact that you know John McCain and, and John Poindexter, who was a, who was a major figure in American foreign policy back in the eighties, uh, and and Bruce McCandless were all there at the Naval Academy at the same time, and. And and all these things, I mean, you know, it, it's it, it it is kind of it is kind of astounding in a way to see all these connections. And and uh, there's an even weirder story in that one, an older one that that relates to you know Wild Bill Hickok and and the fact our mutual ancestor was was uh, one of if not the first victim of gunfight with uh, with Hickok. Although actually in this case there wasn't a gunfight; it was simply a an ambush uh, that, that resulted in the death of, of Dave McCandless and the family moving from Nebraska to Colorado. So, so yeah, it's, a, I mean, I think it's an interesting story, but it's not, it's not one that, uh, that my dad ever was able really to verbalize. And I, I don't know if he thought all this was sort of a matter of course or, or uh, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, or, or, or what, but I mean, there's a, there's, it's a, it's a cool story. There's lots of interesting little intersections of, of history in there. And, and, uh, I knew some high points, but I certainly didn't know the detail that, that I've learned in, in writing the book. It strikes me, and this can sound very wrong, and I, I hope I get this out right, that your dad is the intelligent version of Forrest Gump. <laughs> yeah, that's In the I, sense that when you watch Forrest Gump, he seemed to be in the middle <laughs> of the action all the time, yeah. but he wasn't aware of it. But you know, obviously your dad's super intelligent. Um, boy with two brains, as he was once called. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, funny. Uh, you know, um, and and he just happens to be at the at the senior at the Naval Academy um, when 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 Sputnik, uh, you know, quite literally passes overhead, and he's you know he he's also the president of the radio club, and so he runs up to his room and hooks up the the radio receiver, and and uh, he and his buddies listen to Sputnik beeping uh, as it goes by, and and uh, he later joked that beep 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 was Russian for we will bury you, and you know, like like a lot of Americans, he was. <laughs> suddenly determined that uh, the Russians weren't going to be able to take the high ground unchallenged. Yeah. He'd been flirting with the idea of, of going into the submarine force, but uh, at that point, you know, switch back to wanting to, to fly and go, maybe go into space. Although, although, you know, of course no one really knew what it was going to take to go into space, but, but piloting seemed to be a better idea than going underwater. So yeah. Emily, you can probably speak to that. I don't know. <laughs> You've done some submarining, right? Um, I've been in a sub plant before. I was, I was not, stationed on a submarine only because at the at the time women weren't um allowed to be on submarines they aren't i think they are now in at least a limited capacity but i was on a carrier but i was 
basically on a submarine because I was probably under the waterline or pretty dang close to being under the waterline. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was probably submarine and not, and I didn't see any sun for like six months. So close enough. <laughs> That's close enough for sure. <laughs> okay, this is actually a serious question. Um, so um, okay. I I read Patrick Mullane, or actually I haven't read all of it yet. I need to get and do it, but I've read parts of Patrick Mullane's uh, book that he just did. The, the father, the son, and the holy shuttle. At the beginning, you know, he talks about his uh, dad had a shuttle pad aboard. And I mean, it was just terrifying for his family. Like, he honestly mm -hmm. thought, you know, oh my God, dad blew up on the pad or something like that. I mean, reading that, I honestly was like, I, I think really the bravest people weren't inside the shuttle. I think they were the people on the ground. I think it was the families because I don't think I could have done that and just stayed level headed. Can you say how it affected, you know, you know, you or your family, you know, and how did people cope with that? Because that that to me, I mean, I, I don't know if anybody, everybody can deal with that kind of feeling. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a good question. But but I've I read Patrick's book and, and I really enjoyed it. And he does a particularly good job. And I think that's the very the very first yeah. chapter of the book. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, pretty gut wrenching. But I, I have to say I was. I was considerably older when my dad went up in 84, his first flight, and I wasn't even in the country. So it, it was, a, you know, the experience was was a lot different for me. And and I will say that at that point, we hadn't had a fatality in space. Uh, the American American space program hadn't anyway. I probably didn't appreciate um, how dangerous the whole thing was. You know, in, in the abstract, I guess I was a little bit uh, apprehensive, but, but, but it wasn't, uh, I didn't feel physical discomfort. Uh, as a result, now now my mother was a different story. She was a, an Olympic caliber warrior. <laughs> you know, my sister tells me it was very hard on her. I mean, she she worried when my dad you know went to work in the morning. You know, much less um, went into space. So so yeah, it, it was hard on her. Uh, you know, I, I did go to the launch in, in 1990. Uh, I got really nervous and and worried and then of course the launch was postponed so so nothing happened and then I, we came back and and uh i think it was a couple of weeks later and and you know you go through the whole process again it's a little it's a little less uh nerve-wracking and, and uh it, it happens i i have to say I, I i'm not the best authority on that like i say i was a little bit older i, I wasn't particularly scared about it uh, you know you got to be a little bit when you get out there and you hear the noise and you know it's a pretty awesome experience so so you can't help but be a little bit uh moved by it but patrick's a much better authority on that subject than i am so what you've just touched on there leads me on to my next question and i'm not even sure if you're the right person to ask but it strikes me that there's a whole study that could be done on the mental health of astronauts of that era they're all such stoic men who wouldn't want to show any weaknesses but in the case of your dad you have a man who is super high achieving very intelligent, son of another man who was also really high achieving in his field. He joins NASA, is involved with the Apollo program behind the scenes, gets a backup crew for Skylab mission, but ultimately has to wait 18 years for his first flight. And that's a huge amount of time, and the impact on his mental health must have been huge. And yet he was able to power on. Now, I'm wondering, did you see things which concerns you with regards to his mental health, which today may be spoken about completely differently than, well, they wouldn't even mm. spoken about at all at the time, I guess. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. 
you know, I, I, and I do touch upon it a little bit in the book. I, I think he was he was frustrated. He was disappointed. I mentioned in the book he 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 wasn't a big fan of journalists generally, and and you know tried not to pay attention to to what was in the news. But in his files, I found not one or two or three. I actually found five, and then when I was most recently in Colorado looking through stuff, I found another one. Six copies of. An article. Uh, it was a it was a, a press story, a, a wire story from back in 1973, saying basically calling uh, him specifically a, a, a washout. You know, saying the forgotten astronaut. You know, uh, the way it looks now, Bruce McCandless will, will never fly. And 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 as you point out, he, you know, he had come to he, he joined NASA as not only the youngest member of his class, but he was the youngest astronaut. Um, for, for a while and, and uh, you know, a little bit of a prodigy uh, and, and uh, had, the, had the great success in, in being named Capcom for Apollo 11, you know, when, when Neil and Buzz stepped on the moon. And then something happened. And, and I talked about that in the book, um, but, but his career was, was basically uh, sidetracked. And, you know, he had to wait a long time. And, and, and during that, in the period you're talking about is, is that sort of uh, that wandering in the wilderness period where, he didn't. He hadn't gotten a flight uh, when 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 people were, were going up, and it didn't look like he was going to get a flight. Um, uh, and, and you know, how do you deal with that? And I, I think he was able to channel that in mostly healthy directions in terms of he was hard on himself, so he he put pressure on himself to do more. I mean, I remember going to um, mm. when I when I was a kid, uh, the Houston Arrows, where it was an expansion. There was a new hockey league, and there was an expansion team called the Houston Arrows, and. And Houston had never won anything in professional sports. We never won a championship. So, so when the Arrows, uh, with, with Gordy Howe, their great player, made the championship series, you know, I, I was there with my friend Robert for the championship game, and and uh, my dad took us, and and we were there, and everyone was excited, and it was a great game. And at the end, you know, Robert and I and various other fans in the city of Houston ran out on the ice, and you know, circled the ice, screaming and yelling, and and uh, you know eventually went back to find my dad who had been sitting in his chair the whole night studying Russian uh, in hopes of, of getting an Apollo Soyuz uh, mission slot. No matter the surroundings, he was, he was just intense on, on, uh, on working, you know, I'm not sure he knew even who had won that night. So, so certainly frustration is not good for your mental health. Uh, and, and there was a fair amount of that, but, but to his credit, um, you know, he, I don't, I don't, I don't think he ever sought help. That would that would have been unlike him. Yeah, yeah. That, sorry, that wasn't what I was getting. At. I did, definitely didn't expect him to have ever uh, looked for professional help with this regards, as that would have gone completely against what those men were like in terms of showing weaknesses, etc. Yeah, but I do think it would be an incredible thing to study. How did they find the coping mechanisms to get them through adversity or setbacks or long hours and overworking or whatever it is? I think so much could be learned from that. Uh, for, for you know, for people like me, and and let's be fair, eighteen years is an incredibly long time to wait yeah. for a flight. An incredibly long time, like ridiculous. Yeah, I agree, and and it's a great you know don't don't be wrong. It's a great question. I'm just not I'm not a I'm not equipped to answer it. And and you're right. I mean, men, <laughs> yeah, men in that generation, they in their there were you know more candid moments, and some of the astronauts, in fact, say, look, we just weren't brought up. To, to know how to deal with some of those things. And, and so, 
uh, for better or worse. And sometimes it was worse. You know, we, we, we turned to other things. Uh, um, I mean, it wasn't always, wasn't always healthy for sure, but, I, but he managed to deal with it somehow and, and, uh, and, and to move forward and, and, uh, you know, things worked out for him. It doesn't always, but it worked out in this case. Um, well, on a lighter note, I look at your background now as we're on this Zoom call and you've got a lovely space background <laughs> and some, some, some nice models there. Yeah. Uh, have have you, as a son of an astronaut, have you always been a space nut or was it difficult for you to accept the space world? No, I, I, I was not. Uh, and, and in fact, maybe that's one reason why I've learned so much in writing this book. You know, it was it was impossible to escape some aspects of it. There's a story in the in the uh, in the book about uh, the early days uh, of the shuttle when they were still trying to I guess NASA was still trying to figure out what to call it the best name for the, the, the shuttle, uh, you know, after it was, I guess, winnowed down from the space transportation system. And, and, and I remember sitting around the table coming up, trying to cope with names for the shuttle. And we came up with some really, really bad names, like, you know, cosmic carry all. And so, so like that. And dad, you know, I, I actually found the piece of paper that he wrote these names down on it to, you know, no way. so, you know, you couldn't escape from it altogether. And, you know, whenever I was, uh, home in the late seventies, early eighties, there was con- conversation about uh, either the MMU or, or or later the Hubble Space Telescope and Solar Max, the the, uh, the A-Link satellite that they were going to use uh, the MMU to go get that sort of thing. So, so I mean, I, I managed to absorb some of it without really trying. But there there are so many people out there I've found out who know so much more uh, about the space program it's been it's been very humbling although I mean, it's been extremely helpful because like like i said you know you can you can always uh, call on uh, emily or, or dwight manecki to talk about skylab or or uh, you know i've actually through through space hipsters i've talked to jack lausma and, and fred hayes and some of those guys so that's been awesome been great i have one more question and it's actually kind of a fun question so um Okay, let's let's just say, you know, there's an alternate alternate timeline, you know, alternate history. It's sort of like for all mankind, you know. Um, let's say Skylab, Apollo, and Shuttle flew during the nineteen seventies. What do you think your dad may have flown? I think he was I think he was a Skylab guy. He didn't get to go up in the shuttle. One one thing that always disappointed him though was that for, for whatever reason, he never really got the respect he probably deserved for being a pilot. I mean there, there was an evening I remember when I was talking to, to Vance Brand, who was the commander of uh, STS-41, and and, uh, and and he said, you know, your dad eventually made himself into a pretty good pilot. And I thought that was such a strange comment. There was a time at NASA when that really was how you lived or died, depending on your piloting skills. And for someone who could who could land a, an F-4 Phantom on the deck of an aircraft carrier at night, you know, in a storm, that seemed like you'd be a good pilot, but NASA was full of hotshot pilots. You know, I like to say every, every, every man in building four that he was competing against was Captain Kirk. You know, they were all great pilots. And so for whatever reason, he never got a, a front seat slot. You know, he was a mission specialist for STS-41 and STS-31. Uh, I think he would like to have been uh, a, a pilot, but, but for whatever reason, he wasn't. So, so I think he was a Skylab guy. Uh, I think he, if he'd had his way, um, Skylab would have stayed up there indefinitely. Uh, he would have been up there uh, with an MMU or two, and he would have been in charge of making repairs to shuttles <laughs> as they went by. You know, I mean, maybe they could have figured out how to fix the tiles on, on those things, and uh, th- that would have been his dream job. I think nice. that is awesome. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that's that's wonderful to uh, envision. 
Yeah, it would, it would be nice. It, it, there's a lot of great alternate histories we can think of. It's, you know, it's all up to the American taxpayers. We gotta, we gotta get them all excited about about uh, doing yeah. some of these projects. And, and I think it's great to see how uh, you know how the idea and for all mankind of how you know the Russians landing a, a woman on the moon gets everyone excited about putting an American woman on the moon and that sort of thing. So so enjoyed watching that. Yeah, it's good fun. Um, so this is called Space and Things, right? And it's it dawned on me this week, which we we never do any things, Emily. Yeah, and things. It is called Space and Things. Yeah, and so I just want to mix it up a little bit. Now, recently I made a discovery of the PB&J sandwich. Obviously, I've heard about this for a number of years, but I've never tried one before. And I'm, I made one, and it was amazing. It was a taste sensation, and I realized I've been missing out all these years. But... I, I thought about it earlier. I was like, I've got two Americans I'm speaking to later. Maybe I should ask for some tips. So my question is, am I supposed to put the peanut butter or the jam, sorry, jello as you would call it, on first? Does it make a difference? Well, it does make a difference if you put jello on it, Dave. Oh no, yeah, you do call it jelly you call it jelly, yeah, don't you? Yeah. Right. So yeah, right, okay. So I'm getting confused with your your misuse of our language. <laughs> um right. Two, so. <laughs> two people divided by a common language, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's jelly that you call jam anyway. So what, what, which, which one were I supposed to put on first? Well, okay. So first of all, you gotta, you have an important decision to make and that is smooth or chunky peanut butter. I'm a chunky guy. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so I would, I, I always do the peanut butter first and then add, you know, a modest amount of, of jam or, or jelly. That's how I do it. Fantastic. That's uh, that's exactly what I've been doing. So now I'm feeling much better about <laughs> my life decisions. Emily, do you concur? You're, you're... I don't know if you guys have this in because um, I am I'm not familiar with your ways as I am from the United States and not from England. But um, I don't know if you guys have this. It's called fluffer. It's like a marshmallow spread. Yeah, we you can get it in selected stores, but it's yes, yeah, we know it's American. Okay, yeah, I've I've had. I I used to I don't eat this anymore because I don't want diabetes. But uh, <laughs> I used to like peanut butter and fluffer sandwiches when I was a little bit younger, and when I could actually eat that when I was b- below forty, when I didn't fall into the hey diabetes may be a risk in your lifetime. You may not want right. to eat that. You may want okay, to put I, it down. So I got, I'm going to have really to try good. it now. Just try I'm it once. Try it. Yeah, I will do. I will do. Thanks for the tip. Appreciate that. Anyway, Bruce, wh- when does this book actually come out? Well, so it's, I think the official uh, release date is July 13th um, here in the U.S., maybe later in uh, in Great Britain, but but not too much later, I hope. Um, so maybe end, end of July. Fantastic. And um, you very kindly said that, that there's a copy or two that we can give away to our patrons. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. How about three? Wow. Well, that would be really kind of sure. you. So thank you very much. I, I will do a, I'll do a little draw later and reveal the reveal the winners uh, on, on our Patreon page uh, over the course of this week and, uh, and, and let you know if that's okay. Yeah, very good. That'd be great. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for your time. This has been absolutely fascinating. And although, as I said, I'm only eight chapters into this book, I am absolutely loving it. And it's bringing someone to life who's been an icon on my wall for so long. So thank you so much for doing that as well. <laughs> well, good. I, I, I hope I've captured uh, some aspect uh, of my dad's personality and, and uh, 
his achievements. I mean, he was an extraordinary man, and and I was I'm pleased to be able to to, to write about him. So thank you for your kind words, and thanks for having me on the show. I, I enjoyed it. Is it a show? Do you call it a show or a podcast? I think What's... we call I think we call it a show. Yeah, yeah. I kind of okay. call it a show. Yeah, yeah. No, I enjoy listening to the to the podcast, and I appreciate you asking me. Thank on. you, thank you, absolutely, thank you. Thanks. We'll put that on the fly. Okay, Neil, we can see you coming down the ladder now. Hey, so this is Dave talking the day after we recorded all of this episode. Now, unfortunately, this week, I don't have too much time to turn the whole thing around. And Emily and I were unable to to reconnect before the episode is due out. But you may have noticed that we've had a few problems with Emily's audio this week, which we would definitely sort out for next time. Uh, But it's easier for me just to cut some of it rather than keep it in with, with the buzz. But... Emily and I did have a big discussion this point about the book, Bruce's book, which is amazing, and how we're actually really glad that it was written by Bruce the son and not Bruce the father. Not meaning that as an insult to Bruce the father and not because we thought that wouldn't have been a good book or a good read, but because this is a completely different insight than we would have got and from other books that we've had about astronauts from this period. Anyway, if you want to know more about this book or Bruce, then all the links will be in our show notes, which you can find on your podcast provider. If they don't show up there, just head to our website, spaceandthingspodcast.com, and the full unedited video of that interview, and we spoke about quite a few other things actually, is available on our Patreon page. Amen, indeed. Okay, so on to the news, sport and weather. We've got a few launches to tell you about, and as always, full details and videos will be in the show notes. On the 25th of June, a sounding rocket launched from Wallops Flight Facility, Virginia, carrying 40 payloads for university students who have signed up for the Rock On program. The rocket reached 72 miles high before coming back and landing in the Atlantic Ocean. The payloads will now be given back to the students. Also on the 25th of June, the Russian Aerospace Forces put a couple of military satellites into orbit after launching a Soyuz 2.1B rocket from the Plesetsk Cosmodrome in Russia. On Tuesday 29th of June, a Soyuz 2.1A rocket launched a Progress Supply mission to the International Space Station from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. On Wednesday the 30th of June, Virgin Orbit put seven satellites into orbit using their Launcher 1 rocket, which is launched mid-air from the underside of a modified Boeing 747 called Cosmic Girl. This was the second successful mission of this rocket after the first one failed back in May 2020. And they're aiming to be able to do six of these these missions a year. Also on the 30th of June, SpaceX launched 88 satellites into orbit on a Falcon 9 rocket from Florida, with another successful landing of the first stage as well. This mission was scrubbed the day before after a small plane entered the safety zone moments before liftoff. Now, this was the second of the transporter rideshare missions, with the previous one delivering 143 different satellites into orbit. It's also SpaceX's 20th mission from Florida this calendar year and the fourth this month. On the International Space Station, we've had another spacewalk to deploy the second of the new solar arrays that will update the power supplies at the station. We spoke about this in much more detail last week, but this is the second of six new arrays which are now in place. Also, while we're talking about the ISS, Tide 
the laundry detergent. Why am I laughing at this? Oh my god! <laughs> I knew you'd laugh. I knew you'd laugh. I knew we wouldn't be able to get through this seriously. I'm not gonna do this. I'm not gonna be able to do this. Tide, the laundry detergent company, has partnered with NASA to develop a detergent to be used in space. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you could do it. Amazing. <laughs> Currently, astronaut. Oh my god. Currently, <laughs> astronauts in space do not have the ability to clean their clothes. They wear them all the time and discard them for new ones. That's kind of stinky. Yeah. Obviously, this isn't a sustainable approach. And with longer missions on the horizon to the moon or Mars, this could be a useful development, even if it may seem a little bit silly. Oh, my God. Okay. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Laundry in space. Anyway, meanwhile, in Europe, the European Space Agency, or ESA, received a record number of applicants in its recent search for new astronauts. 22,000 people across the continent applied to join, which is nearly three times as many as the last time the books were open in 2008. It's also worth pointing out that 5,419 of those applications came from women compared to 1,287 in 2008. So while there is growth in that department, it, which is slightly higher than three times the amount of before, it's still considerably lower than the number of men. Clearly, there is still a long way to go in terms of making women feel like space is as open for them as it is for men. Now, and this is a quote from ESA. It's a strange line. ESA are looking to add six astronauts to their books and have said that at least 15% of those will be women. Okay. I don't know why they didn't just say at least one will be a woman. Yeah. But anyway... But this, yeah, this is one of those times I think they just need to do it 50-50. No matter yes. how many astronauts they choose, make it 50-50. And while some may say that this is unfair to the men that have applied, I mean, it's harder for a man to get this job. As long as everyone is qualified who gets the job in the end, equal and visual representation is the most powerful tool available when trying to encourage more women in the future. Bearing in mind it's been 13 years since the last time these books have even been open, it's fair to say that those who will apply next time uh, will be very young right now. And it's crucial that they look at a space agency and see that it's a place for them. And that's how you can encourage young women to get involved. Another lineup of men is not going to have the desired effect of speeding up the process of equal participation in science and engineering fields. We're having the same argument within the music industry about festival lineups right now. And the idea of 50-50 lineups sometimes get pushed back on by the clowns who say, but the women's acts don't sell as many tickets, which is, of course, rubbish. But within this field, there is no such argument. So... Let's just make it happen. Absolutely. Okay, we spoke to Bruce earlier about his father's work on the Hubble Space Telescope, but as we mentioned last week, there has been a problem with the computer, and NASA has announced that they don't see there being a quick fix to this problem, unfortunately. Uh, both the main and backup computer on board the telescope have come down with the same problem, which has put the telescope out of action for the last two weeks. Uh, even though the satellite was originally launched in 1990, these computers were installed in 2009, and they were built in the 1980s. NASA has said that the other equipment on board appears to be still in good working order, 
and they are working to solve the problem, but it may take longer than they thought. Now, you may remember back on episode 34 when we spoke to the CEO of a startup aerospace company called Blue Shift Aerospace, who are developing rockets that fly with a non-toxic biofuel. Well good news. They've just had a massive boost of getting their first signed purchase order. The company, who are based in Maine, have received the order from a Virginia-based education company called Max IQ Space and have agreed to purchase as many as 60 student payloads per launch for a minimum of two suborbital launches per year. Now, this is a huge step for that company. They've also now reached over $570,000 on their WeFunder campaign, where they have set a target of $1,070,000. Pretty sure if they reach that target, it unlocks some extra funding them from someone else as well. I'm sure that's what I remember hearing. But anyway, I love a good crowdfunder campaign, and I'm willing them on on this one. And I will be posting a link in our show notes for you to go and have a look in case you want to go and invest in this startup. Virgin Galactic has been granted its license to carry passengers into space. The U.S. Federal Aviation Administration has granted the extension to its current license so it can carry passengers after it's achieved all the major objectives which were required. There are expected to be three more test flights this summer, but they may start carrying passengers from within the company with Richard Branson expected to go up (laughs) on one of them. Beyond that, passengers will be expected to pay at least $250,000 for a suborbital trip to space with the company. I'll get saving. Right. Um, Very briefly, I'm going to be posting some videos in the show notes from the Mars rover, the Chinese Mars rover, which have been published this last week. They're absolutely amazing. You have to check them out. But finally, the news you've all been waiting for. (laughs) The results of the naming of the mannequin, which NASA are going to fly to the moon. After two weeks of votes, Commander Moonakin Campos will be riding on Artemis 1, the uncrewed test flight of the space launch system. The name is a dedication to Arturo Campos, who was a key player in bringing back the Apollo 13 mission back in 1970. So the Moonakin will be fitted with various instruments to measure radiation and acceleration data. And the Moonakin has been used before in other vibration tests for the Artemis program. And it will be joined by two female-bodied mannequins called Zohar and Helga, who were named by the Israeli Space Agency and the German Aerospace Center, respectively. Campos, Zohar and Helga. Quite the crew there. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And they will be carrying with them some Tide washing detergents. Yes, some Tide pods. <laughs> tide pods to keep themselves extra clean. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you enjoyed learning more about Bruce McCandless II, and hopefully it will make you think differently next time you see that photograph. And don't forget to help our non-existing marketing department by hitting that share button. But remember, in space, no one can hear you stream. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions. <laughs>